This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This episode is brought to you by Hunt Hickory Creek. And new to Hunt Hickory Creek this year is their Central Kansas Lodge. They're going to be running hunters from the end of October all the way through January. And their main hunting area is located between Kavira National Refuge and Cheyenne Bottoms. Central Kansas is a special place for waterfowl hunting. And during the peak migration, those refuges hold hundreds of thousands, if not close to millions of ducks and geese at a time. Mainly speckle belly, snow, and lesser Canada geese, mallards, pintails, and widgeon. You may have an opportunity to harvest all of these species in one hunt. You'll be very comfortable every morning in their AVNX A-frame blinds or laying on backboards, and they hunt over 1,200 of the industry's finest decoys. So visit their website at www.hunthickorycreek.com for booking information and follow them throughout the year on Facebook and Instagram. And don't miss your opportunity at a hunt of a lifetime with Hunt Hickory Creek. If you're going to hunt Kansas, hunt Hickory Creek. Welcome to the Fowl Front Outdoors Waterfowl Podcast, where our goal is to recruit and educate new hunters while entertaining the rest of you. Without new hunters and the mentorship of those more seasoned, this passion as we know it faces an uncertain future. So get the word out, turn the volume up, and enjoy the show, because you're on the Fowl Front. All right, uh, Jerry, thanks for coming on the show today. Uh, we, today we've got, uh, for episode number 10, we've got Jerry Holden, who is the regional director for the South region of Ducks Unlimited. Jerry, you want to uh, give us a little introduction and let you let, it, let, let the listeners know who you are? Yeah, so Ducks Unlimited in the United States has four regions, the West, the South, the Prairies, and the East. And I run the South, um, so I'm the director of operations for New Mexico all the way across Kansas, all the way across Tennessee and up to Virginia and to, and to the south from there. And so um, within that geography, we got two, two really important level one continentally important priority areas for waterfowl. That's the Gulf Coast and the, the alluvial valley of the Mississippi River, which runs from about 
Cairo, Illinois, down to New Orleans. And those two areas are super important for waterfowl. And uh, that's why the Southern Regional Office, that where I go to work every day, is located in Jackson, Mississippi. And um, and uh, I'm uh, I'm a, a DU employee of nine. 19 years and, uh, and make my living and my, it's my vocation and my avocation and my passion to work for waterfowl every single day. It's all I think about. And that's why it's such a great opportunity for me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I hear you. I wish, I wish this wasn't my side gig and I wish I could do more <laughs> with it. Um, but I didn't know that the South region encompassed New Mexico and I've actually done a lot of duck hunting in New Mexico, and I, I think it's one of those hidden gem states when it comes to uh, waterfowl hunting. There's a, there are a lot of landscapes like that. The arid landscapes, uh, like Kansas, where I'm from, it's arid and semi-arid landscapes. If you put water out there, high-quality duck food in it, you get bird response. And one of the things I love about working in New Mexico is you don't even have to put high-quality duck food out there. It's so dry. You, you put water, find the water, you get ducks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and there's not a lot of extreme weather to, to push them out. So they kind of, they get, they get in there and they kind of swirl around for most of the season is at least yep. that was my experience. We've been working on the, uh, along the Rio Grande corridor, yeah. to partner with New Mexico game and fish and fish and wildlife service there at Bosque del Apache. And so the New Mexico, you don't, you don't truly work everywhere in the state. That river is like, that's your lifeblood. Right. And so we've been we've been working there for, uh, for several decades now, uh, doing what we can. Uh, we helped with the acquisition of uh, Price's Dairy Farm. That was the name of it. But they they made a new urban refuge right there in Albuquerque, and it was eighteen point two million. Uh, you know, look, we didn't have eighteen point two million in it, but we did help the Fish and Wildlife Service with that because it's important to have public lands, public access for people. Um, not everybody's got a. a, a, a rich guy duck club and so that's one of the other important angles that ducks unlimited tries to do is to take care of joe everybody i totally agree uh now uh, speaking along just around new mexico and out near el paso did you ever do any work with the international boundary water commission down there along the rio grande or anything like that no i'm familiar with it but we we have not done any more work with them yeah that's that's one area that um i mean that whole that place you know all the way from el paso to Oh, down to, I can't remember the state park, but that, that is all prime. <laughs> There's a lot of ducks along that Rio Grande there. And uh, there are, and, pe- and people think about, they think about ducks unlimited and they think about the prairies of the U S and Canada. And we need to get to that. And that's super important landscape. It's the most important landscape on the whole continent. But as I said, there's a whole lot of the United States that has really important wetland complexes, like the ones we're talking about, like, uh, Cheyenne Bottoms in Kansas or the Rainwater Basin in Nebraska or the Great Salt Lake in Utah. We can go on and on and on. Um, waterfowl are a continental resource, and that's why DU works. That's why we have four regions. Right, right. So I guess we'll get a little personal. How did you get started duck hunting? So um, my dad w- – my granddad was not a duck hunter. He's a rabbit hunter. And my dad, when he got out of the service in 67, happened to get stationed in a place uh, that had some ducks in the middle of Kansas. And uh, so he just sort of figured out how to duck hunt. And then when I got old enough, he started taking me. And in 19, 
78, I, we walked up on a beaver pond and flushed some mallards and each of us shot a greenhead. And there's something about that moment. I don't have the words. I am not articulate enough to explain to you what happened. But in that moment, that duck enchanted me. And there's a guy named uh, Jose, Jose Ortega E. Gasset. He's a philosopher, and he wrote that I do not hunt in order to kill. On the contrary, I kill in order to have hunted. And that moment, that's exactly what happened. There's something about the consumptive activity that, um, that, that really – it did something to me. And so I was that kid. As soon as I could drive at 14, I was going duck hunting. And as soon as I could, I got a dog at 16 and read every book I could to train it. And it just became the principal focus of my life was waterfowl, all things waterfowl from, from, from making duck calls to training dogs, to, to figuring out the better, better decoy spread to being the best wing shot I could be that duck started to drive my life starting in 1978. All right, so you you know you shoot your your first duck in 1978, uh, and then you you wind up at Kansas State, and then how do you get started working uh, for DU? You said for the last yeah. 18 years. Yeah, so you got So what happens is I go to K State, and I I, uh, I was a pretty good student in high school. I wasn't such a good college student. Some people can relate to that. Yeah, flunked out uh, pretty good, and ended up ended up working for Walmart. And uh, was pretty successful doing that and really enjoyed doing that kind of work and and uh, was a management for them for a number of years. And then I had enough money, I guess, to retire after seven years and kind of beg my way back into school and was able to get all three of my college degrees. Um, and, uh, how, and then I went to work for the Air Force in Grand Forks, North Dakota, because you'll find I've lived a lot of places, but they all have lots of ducks. Like, I'll move. I'll go anywhere. I'm not rooted, but it's got to be a ducky spot. So I was working in North Dakota, and uh, and I saw Ducks Unlimited was hiring a remote sensing analyst in Jackson, Mississippi. And that happened to be my, when my graduate degree is in. And so the Air Force had hired me to use satellite technology and computer technology to help them. And, and so I saw that job, and I thought, you mean I can have a job working for DU? And wait, well, I didn't even believe it was true. And so I applied and Ducks Unlimited hired me back in 1999 and um, to, to quantify, to look at the landscape with a satellite and to quantify the waterfowl habitat in the winter because we were looking in the south. Mm-hmm. And um, and so that's how I started working for Ducks Unlimited. And today I'm an administrator and that and being an administrator is not all that um that attractive a job for a lot of people, it's budgets and personnel actions and that sort of stuff. But I get fueled because though I don't deliver projects anymore, I get, I get, I get all of the, the good mojo from that, right? The team that is working in the South, they deliver those projects, but that's, that's the shortest version of how I came to Ducks Unlimited 19 years ago. Right. You get to deliver the the money and the talent to the projects. Yeah. You you really got to look at the output from the machine. So DU's very associated with something called the North American Waterfowl Management Plan, which is where DU's not the author of it. The waterfowl community got together. That's the Fish and Wildlife Service and all the states mm-hmm. and Ducks Unlimited got together. And they wrote this thing 30 years ago 
called the North American Waterfowl Management Plan, where we'd all get together and decide how much habitat we needed and where we needed it, what the weaknesses in the chain were. And as a whole community, all 50 states and the Fish and Wildlife Service and the NGOs, the non-governmental organizations like DU, get together and we'd, like any other big job, we'd parse out the work. Who's going to do what? How are we going to get there? And uh, and that North American Waterfowl Management Plan, is it's like the – it's the roadmap. It's the it's the Ten Commandments. That's what it is. It's the Ten Commandments for Ducks Unlimited. It's it's our foundational document. It's like the doctrine for you guys. It is. So. It's like and we we didn't write it. We're in there with all the states and the federal government trying to do what we need to do for ducks. And and it of course it's not just our federal government. It's also the Canadian and Mexican federal governments because we're all linked into it. It's the North American Waterfowl Management Plan. Right. So I think that a lot of times, um, I mean, myself included, especially when I first started getting into waterfowl uh, hunting five years ago, even before that, I had been to a Ducks Unlimited banquet. And, you know, I'm just looking at it like it's a, it's a gun raffle, right? And yeah. um, I think a, a lot of times, you know, there's not much thought given to uh, – what what really what happens um, after you you get my membership money or I spend a bunch of money on raffle tickets and uh, it's looked at more of like a, a hunting club and I'm just curious if you could give us a, a peek behind the curtain as to you know uh, w- what's going on with with Ducks Unlimited Ben that that is the greatest. Um, that is the paradox, right? That that is the paradox of Ducks Unlimited. To the world, and even to some of the people inside, um, we we appear to be a hunting organization. And and it and look for the record, it is wonderful and fine to go to get together a group of friends and like-minded individuals and throw a party and raise money for this cause. And you don't really have to get into the the molecular level granular detail. But you ask, and that's a really good question. And so what 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 Ducks Unlimited really is is a habitat organization. You'll find that we don't often, almost never get involved in regulatory questions. There's always reasons and causes for us to get into things, and we usually step aside and say, wait, that's not a habitat issue. What we are is the world's largest habitat organization for waterfowl most of that's wetland habitat some of that's grassland habitat but that's what we do acre by acre our charter was to try to make a difference for waterfowl at the continental scale the the mission statement says like uh, wetlands sufficient to fill the skies with waterfowl today tomorrow and forever right these habitats benefit those ducks that we work for but they also benefit people it's one of the things that is that's often missed is when we deliver wetlands, we we provide habitat for 700 species, according to the Fish and Wildlife Service, right? We effectively deliver clean drinking water to you and clean, cleaner air for your community. We, we deliver coastal resilience, um, economic viability for underserved communities because we work in rural America, rural North America. And and so I think that that difference between what you see when you open the Ducks Unlimited magazine and what we really are is both a great strength and a great weakness. Right. I I think, and I because I think I think all the there's several other NGOs that um, uh, participate, such as uh, I guess Delta and what's the other one? Um, it's, 
the I can't remember what it is, but I know a lot of people they always ask me, "Oh yeah, but you know, Ducks Unlimited doesn't particularly um do anything for like regulations or like um hunter access and things like that." Um, so what would you what would you say about about that? Yeah, so so we do it in the way that I mentioned earlier on. So we don't, right? We're not we rarely will go try to muscle a state to get it to make them do something. What the way we work is because one of our foundational beliefs is that we can be collaborative and not confrontational. Right. So the way we work is we just did a huge acquisition um, near New Orleans, Louisiana, where we bought 1,500 acres of of swampland and and sold it to the state for about a third of what we paid for it, right? Did a bargain sale for those guys. Mm-hmm. So they could add 1,500 acres, right, or nearly three square miles of public hunting. And so in, in that way, we did very much work for hunter access. We just don't trumpet it like that because we partner with the states and don't, and don't try to bully them. We see the states and the, the state wildlife organizations as, as our allies and partners and we do not have an adversarial relationship with them. Right. And so um, my, that's my answer is that we work to the limits our, of our financial ability to increase the amount of land and the, and the quality and quantity of public hunting in the public trust space, in the public landscape, um, with, without going in swinging a big hammer, right? right? We do it that way, and we've been amazingly successful at it. Right. Could you, I mean that's a very good way to put it, and um, I think a lot of people will actually be relieved to to hear that kind of um, response because you know you always you always hear that that argument about um, if you've only got thirty five bucks, you know who do you who do you spend it on? But um, one of my questions, um, and it, it's a it's a bigger one, and I've always kind of wondered how this goes down. How does it go? Um, for like, how do you go about getting like acquisitioning this land, finding the right land? Um, you know, and I understand every property probably is different and it needs a different um, solution. But how does that how does that work from going? Okay, hey, here's this either already public land that's not being managed, or hey, here's this you know private land that's you know. Um, you look to buy and, and stuff like, how does it generally work? Yeah. So there's a lot of answers to that question. So we'll just go through a few examples. Okay. So if, it, if we're talking about management, so whatever the piece of land is public or private, and you and I are talking about public, there's somebody that's already managing it. Right. And so we have, we have relationships with all of those people. And so we try to invest time in those folks and, and have conversations that go something like, Hey, is there anything we can do on your place here to increase the quality of the waterfowl habitat? And then, we, and then, so then some biologists will ride around with that guy or girl, right? And they'll, they'll look at it and they'll think, what if we did this? Maybe that would work. And then we, D will bring an engineer out there and the engineer will look at it and say, yeah, you know, we could do that. And, and then what's it going to cost? And then we figure out what it's going to cost. And then the question, the big question always comes up, well, how are we going to pay for it? And I can tell you this, it is almost never funded wholly with Ducks Unlimited money, right? We, we take, we do, we call it leverage. We provide a little seed money and then we go find grants and we, we try to find public money 
We, we ask the partner to chip in. We kind of pool together a whole bunch of resources to do this stuff because it's expensive. And there isn't enough money from those banquets that we talked about to, to fund uh, wetland habitat. It's, it's expensive work. It won't fund it at scale for sure. And so Ducks Unlimited leverages those money, it takes a little bit of our money that comes from those banquets, and we magnify it or leverage it as far as we can. The other example is if you're going to do an acquisition, it's a similar uh, germ at the beginning of it. So in the case of the one by New Orleans I mentioned to you, the state had been trying to acquire that property for five or six years and unable to complete the negotiation. And so they came to us um, sort of hat in hand saying, hey, can you guys help? And so we started the negotiation and it took us a couple of years, but we got it done. And so, again, it's the manager of the land, whomever they are, federal or state or entity, will will usually come to us or we'll come to them. And we start a conversation about how can we make this place better for ducks? And then what does that look like and how do we pay for it? Right, right. Um, and talking about money is that I know one of the, the primary things that I, you know, I always get a little nervous when I see land getting kicked over to the state um, as opposed to maybe some federal organizations um, just due to the budgetary and like the smaller scale government. And um, is there, do you guys primarily work with more federal or more state? Uh, That varies across vast geographies. Um, Generally speaking, it would be federal, but it would, you'd almost have to say 60, 40. Okay. Or or sixty five thirty five right it's 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 weighted a little bit towards the the uh, the the uh, maybe it's more fifty it really does vary by geography but we work with both parties and okay. so if we speak about the Texas coast the Texas coast has a tremendous amount of federal land on it so we work a lot with the federal government on the Texas coast it also has a lot of Texas state of Texas public land. And so we work with the state of Texas, but it's a little more federal than it is state. Right. Um, if you go a place like Louisiana, right next door, it's way more state. So in Louisiana, we work more on the coast with the federal government. In the in the upland or the rest of the state, we work more with the state government because they have a bigger bigger land holding with which to work. And and we know. So we, you and I haven't gotten into this, but one of the things that the North American Waterfowl Management Plan does is it, is it helps us. We know how much waterfowl habitat that that thing says we have to provide in order to take care of the ducks every year. And so because of the work we've done with satellites and some what are called bioenergetic models, we know within a reasonable degree of confidence how much habitat we have to deliver. And so we're constantly chasing that that goal, right, is to, to get enough habitat out there to take care of the ducks that the plan says we're supposed to take care of. And so it doesn't matter much to us who who the landowner is as long as we have access to the land and can deliver that habitat. Because I can tell you, in the case of Texas and Louisiana coast, we're in a deficit, meaning we are not delivering enough habitat to meet the needs of the ducks that come there every winter. And that's a problem. Okay. So I think oftentimes when you think of conservation efforts and with, uh, with, uh, Ducks Unlimited and whatnot, you think of, um, you know, the North, I at least think of the Northern Prairie pothole region and 
um, Canada and nests and things like that. Um, that's, that's where I always, you know, those are the, the big things that I hear about, um, when it comes to conservation, what particularly is your focus in the South? Yeah. So first, uh, um, the reason you hear about nests is because that's, that is a, a very big factor in what drives the population dynamics for, for any species. It's like, what, where is that species born? You know, what, what are the factors that keep, that keep the nest from being successful, that keep the, the ducks from fledging and being recruited in the population, right? There's a reason for that. And that's super important. In, but in the South, um, what, our job is to take care of, because we have such a big region, take care of migration, in, in places like Oklahoma and take care of wintering habitat. And what's interesting about ducks, they're such a dynamic species. They cover such a large piece of, of the continent, which is to say almost all of it. Um, you can't, if you focus too much on one part of their life cycle, you'll just discover the weaknesses in other parts of their life cycle. You have to support the whole thing, right? If you want to truly make a difference in population and in the South, um, ducks are, are interesting in that they spend, many species spend more time wintering than they do breeding, like green-winged teal and gadwall, for example, spend more time on the Gulf Coast than they do on the prairies. And so the Gulf Coast can be limiting. It's not as limiting. Science tells us that what's limiting is the prairies. But um, I, I worry sometimes that the the wintering habitats have become more limiting and just science hasn't caught up to it because we've been, we've been taking a, a, a fair butt whooping in terms of habitat quantity and quality um, in this, in the South, you know, low these many years. Whereas in the prairies, we've, we've, uh, we've done a little better because as you noted, we have really focused on it. And so the reason that we have a deficit in the, in the Gulf coast is because we we continue to lose marsh habitats and we continue to lose rice, and rice is really important for ducks. One of the things you can remember from this conversation is that rice is an agricultural crop, a commodity, but it happens to be produced in a wetland system, an artificial wetland system that has tremendous benefits for lots of things, including waterfowl. And so what's good for rice is good for ducks. Rice on the ground is good. The, but we've been losing marsh habitats and we've been losing rice habitats. And so basically just simply put less food for ducks than they need. And so most of our focus in the South is providing food via enhancing marsh and enhancing rice habitats. It's not the only thing we do, but those are the two biggest pieces. Right, right. And so that kind of leads me to another question that I had Um in the 19 years that you've been working with DU, um, how have you seen maybe agricultural uh, practices affecting or changing, um, you know, the way we conserve habitat and manage habitat, um, if that's the, the correct word? I know you were just talking about rice. Yeah, um, no, that's a, Ben, that's a good question. So, but it's a big question because I'm going to try to answer it continentally. Okay. And, and so... Uh, for much of the landscape, n- not the prairies, but for much of the landscape, water availability has been the, big, the biggest single change that I've witnessed in that 
in that in vast swaths of the United States, it's simply more expensive to get water on the surface for agriculture due to fuel cost and or aquifer depletion. So you have to pump it farther, right? And so the farmer has to spend more money to, to make his crop, and that that introduces some some economic pressures. And so people make different choices about what to grow. And, and the, the whole agribusiness sector is trying to figure out how to use less water, and that's a good thing. Um, but, but water availability for agriculture and wetland systems is a big, scary thing that's advancing towards us in the wildlife community. Because I can tell you, when water gets limiting, when people don't have enough water in the lake to float their jet ski, or they don't, or or they tell the city of Austin, Texas, that they're going to ration, uh, you can't wash your car or water your lawn, or or Hayes, Kansas, has to buy water rights from the adjacent farmers in order to meet their municipal demands. Wildlife falls pretty far to the back. Instantly, people are worried about the, they're doing their laundry or having getting water out of the door of the fridge. And wildlife kind of gets bumped to the back. And so water availability is a very big threat to waterfowl, but it's a bigger threat to the agricultural community. It's just a threat that we as North Americans have to face and and come up with uh, ingenious ways of dealing with it. And Ducks Unlimited works really hard with the rice growing community to uh, – because we have we have our engineers are the bulk of our staff, and so we work with those folks to figure out ways to use the least amount of water possible to grow the most amount of rice so that they can be economically viable because if we can keep rice on the landscape, that's good for ducks. That's the biggest one for the South. Speaking of the prairies, every time um, there is a, a commodity prices start to rise and there's more demand than – Row crop agriculture, which tends to not be irrigated in that landscape, tends to want to break up some more grass and put it under production because they can make money doing that. And this is America, and that's how we do things. The problem is is that we only had so much grass to begin with, and we have way less now. And, And so there's an erosion of our native prairie, and that native prairie is the most productive waterfowl breeding habitat when it's intermixed with wetlands. And so Ducks Unlimited's position is, hey, we want to protect as much of that as we can. And so one of our bigger programs is a voluntary easement program where landowners, we buy from landowners the um, uh, essentially a, a waterfowl easement that keeps them from ever on that piece of ground converting it from grass into row crop, right? And so the, the, our friends in those landscapes are a lot of the cattle producers, because they like grass too. And so um, those would be the two biggest ones, right? Water availability in the South and then the increasing need, because, you know, there's 7 billion people on planet Earth. So when I was born, there was half of that, right? And I'm 50. And so those people all want to eat, right? And they all want a little bigger house than their parents had, and they want a little nicer car. But the fact that they want to eat is putting pressure on us to grow more crops, to sell them globally and here in the United States. And the one of DU's roles is to do what we can to protect those, those remaining native prairies in North Dakota, South Dakota, and then the three prairie provinces of Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba in Canada. This episode is also brought to you by Grit Pack Calls. If you want to produce a more versatile, 
realistic, and higher quality sound with all the ease of a double read, whether you're looking to up your game or just starting out. Let a Grip Pack call work just as hard for you as the Grip Pack crew did to develop and bring you next level quality with easy blowing calls. Grip Pack calls. Find your grit. Now you said something interesting there that kind of caught my uh, my attention, and uh, you said that your friends were the the cattle ranchers, like that they were you know allies um, in in the prairie grass um, there. And I've always kind of you know looked at cattle as kind of a competition. Um, one, I guess, just for um, you know hunting rights versus having you know cattle on 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 that uh, on that pond. And then any sort of, you know, vegetation that I, you know, try to put down, it gets gobbled up by the cattle. And so it was just interesting that, you know, um, that you said that and actually kind of leads me into one of my other questions that I had for you. So I'm a guy that's got several permissions, um, you know, maybe I've got three or four uh, ponds that are, you know, three to four acres in size and I want to start throwing just a little bit of money, um, and the the landowner says, "Sure, I don't care what you plant around the edge of this, you know, dirty cow pond that I have." Um, you know what what do you what do you tell a guy there, um, spe- specifically, you know, in Kansas or um, maybe somewhere, you know, the Midwest? Yeah, it's pretty hard to do. That's where I'm from. And, uh, and so I know a little bit about it and it's pretty hard to do because you don't have control over your water levels, right? You're rainfall dependent. Yep. But, but one of the millets, brown top millet or Japanese millet, um, Japanese millet likes it a little wetter, brown top, maybe a little drier, but either way, you know, you, you basically on a mud flat situation, you want to plant these millets and then cause them to flood by increasing the water level and whatever your impoundment is come teal season or duck season in order to make those carbohydrates, those seeds from those plants available to the waterfowl. Um, that's a good way to do it. That's why you see so many people planting um, like corn for waterfowl and then, and then impounding that field because they make those carbohydrates available for ducks. But if you're, if you're Joe, everybody in the Midwest and you want to plant food for ducks, you're going to go with Japanese millet, brown top millet, or one of the other millets because they're, uh, they're not a, uh, a human consumed commodity. The, so the seeds are cheaper and they and they, they tend to mature pretty fast. And, and so that's a, that's a safer play. So if you're, if you're asking me how to spend your money to make a little more duck food, that's how to do it. So the other thing I would advise you is that, is that both the NRCS and any of the state agencies have um, technical assistance programs to help landowners do that. And so, and they're free, right? So you call the right people within the state or, or the Natural Resource Conservation Service, which is the federal entity, and say, hey, out here on my private land, I want to make this better for ducks. What should I do? Um, because people psychologically really want to spend money so they can kill more ducks. We feel really good about it. Um, I often find it fascinating because a lot of times wild vegetation is better. But people feel really good about spending money to grow uh, carbohydrates for ducks and and before you spend your money, asking the state agency or the Natural Resource Conservation Service is a good play because it doesn't cost you anything to ask. Right. And so I was going to ask you, um, I just imagine, what did you call it, the, the North American Migration um, is it said Council or Plan? So 
The um, plan, the North American Waterfowl Management Plan. So I was going to ask you, you know, I, I mean, I just imagine, you know, the godfathers of conservation just sitting around this big, long table talking about this. Um, is the is the little guy, the the private land and, you know, a guy like me, is that is that something that you guys um, think about, talk about? I mean, obviously you have the – you just mentioned the NRCS and um, the state agencies that will give free advice for you. Um, but is that something, is that another branch, you know, that you, guys... you betcha. Okay. So there's, I hesitate to go down this path because I have to explain it a little bit, but it's worth it. I think so with the advent of the North American waterfowl management plan, they did a couple of really cool things. One was they created these things called joint ventures and they're migratory bird joint ventures. And what those are is, is a self-directed partnership and it's a coalition. And what, what you see when you go in those rooms is you see your state agencies for a given geography, the federal government represented by the Fish and Wildlife Service, usually the NRCS, um, sometimes the Corps of Engineers, uh, sometimes other federal agencies like uh, Bureau of Rec or BLM, depending on where you are. But you see the people with land management responsibilities. But but one of the things that you see in there is what we call step-down objectives. So so remember, we had this goal. We wanted to bring waterfowl populations back to the status they were in the late 1970s. And so there were some really bright people with a string of PhDs sat around. And they thought about, well, what do we need to do to do that? What are the landscapes that are important? What, what do we? What's limiting to waterfowl in these landscapes? And so they wrote this thing this fairly detailed thing, and it comes with these things called step-down objectives. And what that means is for a given state is they, they step down their, go, their big goal, you know, this much waterfowl habitat. And they say, okay, state, how much can you do? And the state says, okay, I can do this much. And you say, feds, how much can you do? Where is it and what is it? And they, they parse that out. And then they say, well, what do we allocate to the private landowner? And so it varies by state. But the but the, those that's the three legs of the stool. It's the landowners, the private landowner, the the federal landowner, and the state landowner all have step down objectives. All have step down objectives in order to meet the objectives of the North American Waterfowl Management Plan. And so the the little guy is in there, in just the way we just talked about with the ponds that you had. He's in there. Because in many of the landscapes, we're at a deficit. We have not yet delivered enough habitat to meet the objectives of that plan. And so we need everybody pulling at this wagon as hard as they can pull at it. Right. Absolutely. Um, and then so that kind of uh, – I mean that was, that was great. I appreciate you explaining to me you know, um, that and the, especially going to get the free advice from the state and then RCS and things like that. Um, I was hoping maybe you could now talk to us a little bit about, you know, how are we doing? How is <laughs> – what's the health of the North American waterfowl, you know? So this is a complicated question, and sure. the reason it's complicated is because we have near record high waterfowl populations, and but, but yet something's going on, and, and I'll talk to you a little bit about that, but – so we have near record high waterfowl populations, but at the same time, we have less prairie than we had 50 years ago. We have less Gulf Coast habitat than we had 50 years ago. We have less Central Valley of California habitat than we had 50 years ago. We have less Mississippi Alluvial Valley habitat than we had 50 years ago, at least some types in, in that landscape. That's four of the five 
priority landscapes within the North American Waterfowl Management Plan and within Ducks Unlimited's plan. Like those are, it's amazing how it creates a paradox. How do you answer the question that, that we have we have near record high waterfowl populations, yet we have less habitat? Something is going on, right? It begs the question. So, and what's going on is since about 1995, right? It's 2018 now, right? So 23 years, 24 years or so, 23 years, we have had, various versions of wet prairies. And so we've had what, based on the period of record, we have an unprecedented period of wetness in the prairies. It's never happened before since we've been able to measure it. Maybe it's happened, but since we've been able to measure it, it hasn't happened like this. And so those wet prairies are causing um, really abundant production for waterfowl. And that abundant production is driving populations. But, But the question that you have to ask yourself is, is that sort of artificially propping up populations? What happened if we had normally drying prairies, right? The good times in ducks never last, and neither do the bad times. It's a cyclic resource. It goes up, and it goes down, and it goes up. It's the way it always has been. And we are on a very long, prolonged period of wetness that is, that is causing us to have a, a, really a time of plenty in terms of waterfowl. But those of us in the profession really wonder, um, what is this masking? Because we know we have less habitat in these other important landscapes. And so what happens when the prairies get dry? It's a, it, that is a very scary question. Sure. I mean, you just gave me goosebumps and a little, you know, sure he fueled my nightmare there for a second. But, okay. um, so, I mean, that leads me down to uh, another a little bit darker question that I do have, you know, what is it? What, what's the path that leads us down to the road where my grandkids don't get to shoot ducks? What's the biggest threat to waterfowl hunting um, in North America? So there's two. The, the one of them that's emerged lately with all of the news that we watch is the social license question. As there, as hunter numbers have declined, there are less people that understand. Um, the the connection that we have to the resource that way and so people look at us a, a little askance sometimes right some you are some sort of a barbarian for doing that because they don't understand that jose ortega quote that i gave you in the beginning right it's it's not about killing it's about hunting and that's different and but it is hard to put into words and you really can't explain it to someone so social license is a question right and so it's it's important for all of us not to uh not to be overbearing about it, but to continue to bring other people into our sport and show them the magic that we have found. And that's a duty that all of us share. And then the second question is the other, the other thing, the other big threat is when the prairies dry up and we have watched or in some ways participated as a society in the destruction of our other important waterfowl habitats, what really happens? If you look in detail at the numbers of northern pintails, you see something that's that's pretty fascinating. Northern pintail survey numbers in 2017, which is the last year we have data for, was about 2.9 million. Um, and that's okay. That's an okay number. But that's 27% below their long-term average since we've been surveying birds, you know, roughly for the last half a century, right? And so there's something um, – there are some populations of birds that 
once you push their habitat far enough, you'll push them below a viability threshold and you won't have them. Um, you see, uh, we're, we're a step out of the waterfowl realm. We'll talk about northern bobwhite in the south where I live today. It used to be the number one game bird species, and today no one hunts quail because there aren't any. Why aren't there any? Well, because quail habitat vastly declined. And I can tell you this, the one thing I've learned is that it's the habitat. It's the habitat. It's the habitat. If you don't have the habitat, you won't have the birds. The problem with habitat is that it's, dang it, the, the founders of Ducks Unlimited had such an audacious goal. They, those guys sat around a table in 1936 and said, how do, we, how do we materially impact waterfowl populations at a continental scale? And they thought they could do it by wetland restoration in the prairies. That's what they thought they could do, right? And it turns out that that's not really the limiting factor. Um, uh, grassland, grassland where you have wetlands may be more limiting. But the science keeps teaching us stuff. But And it also turns out that, that the, the tenants of the North American Waterfowl Management Plan teach us that it's not just the prairies. And so the biggest threat to your grandkids hunting ducks is habitat because we have more people and they want bigger yards and bigger cars and another Walmart store. And people feel increasingly disconnected from the natural world as they live their lives. And, and your grandparents' generation, everybody hunted and fished and they were dependent on the landscape. And today people feel like food comes from Kroger, right? That comes from the grocery store. And, and, um, and so it's because people don't care about habitat that we have less habitat and less habitat will eventually mean less ducks. And so I finally talked myself around in enough circles to get you there. Um, it's the fact that people don't care enough about these landscapes to save them, protect them and enhance them for waterfowl. That's the biggest threat. Right. That's very well put. <laughs> um, so speaking along the lines of, of habitat and whatnot, um, do you want to highlight some of the big projects that DU's got coming up uh, this upcoming year? So I can do that in a way. So, you know, we talked a little bit about the prairies. We've got a, 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 a program in the U.S. prairies where we are acquiring as fast as we can. We have a backlog of willing landowners that that we purchase easements for, right? So we give them money. We write them a check, and that check comes from nowhere else but the people that support Ducks Unlimited. So that check comes from your checking account to my corporate checking account to those landowners. And the purpose of doing that is to keep that land from ever being converted from grass and water, which is what ducks need. And, and because there's a backlog, we can't move fast enough. We're moving as fast as we can. And so what limits us there is money. And so, uh, that, that's not coming up next year. That's coming up every year right. until we, until we run out of people lined up at our door to do that. That is always super important, right? That is, that is super important stuff. Switching to the South, here we work a lot with public landowners, state and federal, in order to enhance and um, and and magnify, increase the increase the quantity and quality of public waterfowl habitat and public hunting. 
And so you'll see projects at, uh, at, at, at all of the famous WMAs, right? So we, recently we've done projects at Biomeda in Arkansas, the most famous uh, green timber public spot in the world, probably at Pasaloo uh, WMA at the mouth of, mouth of the Mississippi, probably the, the oldest, biggest, and best duck hunting place uh, in the South, though it's hard to get to. And so you'll see Ducks Unlimited working at places like J.D. Murphy WMA in Jefferson County, Texas, which that's one of Texas's most important, probably its most important waterfowl, public waterfowl area. And so D is always going to be there trying to make things better for just duck hunters in general. doesn't really matter if those duck hunters support us or whether they go to the coffee shop and gripe incessantly about what we do. We're still going to do the right thing. Because we really work for ducks. And so our job every day is to take care of waterfowl. And waterfowlers then, then therefore benefit from that. Right. No ducks, no duck hunters. So. Right. Well, you, uh, I have, I have a, another question for you. If you can hear me out for about another 10 minutes. Um, sure. You seem like a very uh, well-read man. Um, I always, I'm going to start this thing where I ask, you know, Hey, uh, what's, you know, can you give me two of your favorite, you know, either books or, um, something, you know, hunting related, uh, that you think every new waterfowler or every waterfowler, you know, should, uh, should read. Well, there's a bunch. So you asked me early on, like how I got into this and, and I did become enchanted, um, 40 years ago by waterfowl, but, as a child, I read uh, the uh, Hunter's Fireside Tales by Gene Hill. And Gene Hill's passed away now. He used to write for, I believe, Outdoor Life. But, but he, they compiled a bunch of that stuff into a series of books, and that's just one of them. And if you want to understand the magic of, of, of ducks, of waterfowling, reading Gene Hill, reading a guy named Corey Ford, who was the generation before that, was writing in the 1950s, uh, uh, anything written by Corey Ford, anything written by Gene Hill, that's in, that is enchanting stuff. Uh, it, it gets to the mystery and the magic of why we do what we do, because it is not logical to be, do you have any idea how much more money you would have if you did not have this particular addiction? It's not <laughs> logical. It's, it is illogical, but it's wonderfully, beautifully, magically illogical. I call it the church of the duck blind. And I, I don't say that tongue in cheek. So no. now, so because I work in the South, I, I have an admitted bias, right? And so um, the it would be important for someone who is interested in Gulf Coast conservation to read a book called Washed Away. Um, and unfortunately, I have the name of the author slips my mind. I will get that to you. Um, a, a book called Washed Away, and, and Washed Away is about um, – what we lose when we lose, not just ducks. It's not even about duck hunting. It's about losing the, the, the habitat and the place, the, pe- the people habitat and the duck habitat and the fish habitat that is coastal Louisiana. And the third one I would mention to you is a guy, um, a guy named John Barry wrote a book called uh, Rising Tide, and it's about uh, flooding in the Mississippi Louisville Valley. And, and that it's really important to, to, um, to 
to understand these landscapes in the in a historical context. The, nothing, no, where where you live, where I live, is not like it was a hundred years ago. And one of our roles as sportsmen and as as avid conservationists isn't to roll it back to some historical condition, but to protect a certain amount of function and value for all of us, the aesthetic value and waterfowl value. And, and ecosystem goods and services, clean water and clean air and butterfly habitat and bee habitat, and salamander habitat. And, and it's, it's just really important. And, and so if, if you did read all of that stuff I, I laid out there for you, you'd have a, a better sense, I think, of the real threats as well as the, as the elemental importance of these landscapes. It really isn't just about ducks. Ducks are what bring me to the table. They make me exceedingly passionate about what I do, but you can't do ecosystem work. You can't do wetland and upland and forested and grassland habitat without benefiting every single person in this country. They just don't know. Right. Right. I mean, that's, that's a great point. Um, and I was furiously writing these uh, books down until I realized I can go back and, and listen to what you just said. So, um, yeah. So we do have a lot of new waterfowl hunters that listen uh, to this show, and that's primarily, you know, that's the genesis of this show. That's why we're here is to get people out into the blind or to help ease that transition from the couch uh, to the marsh. Um, so what would you, uh, as kind of your parting advice um, for somebody that maybe has never even stepped foot uh, out there, doesn't have a mentor, and is just trying to cut their teeth um, the good old-fashioned way. Well, um, regardless of your uh, affiliation, if you if you get – I call it getting in the game. If you get in the game, if, if you say, I want to be a waterfowler, that means you want to take, right? You want to, Fundamentally, you want to take something from the natural environment, take it home and pluck it and eat it. And that's a great thing. Um, uh, eating waterfowl is one of the great pleasures uh, uh, that I enjoy. But if you want to get in the game, if you want to take, you need to figure out how to give. And so I would tell you, the number one way to figure out how to waterfowl is get involved with some NGO, waterfowl-focused NGO, whatever flavor strikes your fancy, or your local retriever club, because you're going to find those are duck people as well. And so what that does, it puts you out there with, with more experienced waterfowlers and you'll create social relationships in your life that you'll be able to find a mentor and you don't have to learn it all through the school of hard knocks. It's not even wise to do that. Duck hunting can be sort of unsafe. It's a sort of a dangerous uh, pastime. And so I would tell you to go, to go find groups of other waterfowlers. And the best place to do that is at, at, at your local fundraising banquet or your retriever club meeting. So you can find the people, the people, that are very interested in what you want to do. Yeah, I think that's an important thing that you just said there was the the social part of it. And, I mean, honestly, I, I came for the ducks and then I stayed for, like, the relationships because it's not deer hunting. I'm, I'm not sitting out in my blind all by myself, which has its, has its you know, time and its purpose. Um, but I there's just nothing better than linking up with three or four of your good buddies or even making new friends and – and setting forth out there and, and really being able to chit chat in the blind and, and form bonds over uh, working ducks. in so 
One of the biggest frustrations I have, um, if I could ask and answer a question or imply a question here, one of the biggest frustrations I have is is to work, um, you know, like like the the the, the staff that we have, the DU volunteers, the fifty five thousand volunteers in the United States, right? Fifty five thousand volunteers and a few Ducks Unlimited staff working their tails off to try to make waterfowl's lives better in in the north on the north american continent that's in canada the u.s and mexico and why do we do that because that's where ducks need us to be and we're working as hard as we can yet there's a there is a segment of the waterfowling population that says well you're not somehow you're not working for my best interest somehow you're some something bad and and, and so i'm not going to support you and and look everybody has the right to not do that but what what is bothersome about that is the notion that all of that effort by those fifty five thousand volunteers and those staff and the state agencies and the feds is somehow part of some vast conspiracy to keep ducks from doing something or to get them to do something. Look, all we are doing is trying to doing our best to meet those objectives in the North American Waterfowl Management Plan, which some of the best scientific minds available put their thinking into that to give us that roadmap to work by there's no conspiracy here the problem is is that we're losing the reason that people get uh, grouchy or a little disgruntled sometimes is i can't tell you that ducks are materially better better off than they were 19 years ago when i started working at this i can in fact tell you that they're worse off but we're doing everything we can to the limits of the dollars because dollars are what limits us we're doing everything we can to make the world better for ducks. And so I would tell people that are listening to this show, if they if they can't get in the game, they don't want to get in the game, at least don't try to sabotage it. They're, they're waterfowlers. They love the same things we do. And when, when they try to hurt uh, waterfowl conservation due to some conspiracy theory that sounds fun around the coffee shop, they're hurting themselves. And that is a that is a cruel irony, but a true one. I I think that's another great point. Is I think it's the same guys or gals doing that are the same people that are, uh, you know, <laughs> the ones that are out there. And uh, I think the the worst hunter harassment and most hunter harassment comes from other hunters. And I, I oh you know, indeed, T- Texas has some great laws about that. Uh, oh, yeah. You better be really, really polite in the state of Texas when you do that. Was it four hundred? No, so yeah, so my, yeah, and you, and if you talk to them, you have to be polite. I mean, you can't be rude about it because the the conservation officers will, um, if you're accused of hunter harassment, you're going to get some cuffs and you're going to go get talked to, which at the very least is going to ruin your hunt, even if you're not arrested. And so we should be, we should be all be civil to each other and. Much hunter harassment, since we're on that subject, comes from the fact that we don't have enough quality public land habitat. And that's why that's one of the really important things that DU works on is because we know we need more of it. It's just expensive, right? It's expensive, and then the state needs to manage it or the feds need to manage it, and that's expensive. And it all wants to chew through a lot of money. But to the limits of the dollar, we do everything we can to make life better for duck hunters, um, all, all of them. And that, that's what we do. And that, that loops back to my point. So if you feel like that you as a waterfowler don't feel like you can give $35 to that or you don't feel like you're benefited from that, that's okay, man. That, that's the greatest thing about America. You can make that choice. 
But when you work against that, that's the part that re- that really is difficult to swallow. Is why why spend your effort trying to hurt the very thing you purport to love? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, if, in other words, in other words, if you don't if you don't approve of something, just just don't support it. Yeah, don't participate. Right. <laughs> don't poison the water. Um, That's right. All right. So, besides my thirty five dollars a month. Potentially more, um, whatever my membership costs. What else can I be doing? It's only thirty five dollars a year, and so or, sorry. So, <laughs> so, so look, that's important. So, so membership is super important, and it's important for this way that we're, we haven't talked about yet. It's because Ducks Unlimited has give or take uh, just under seven hundred thousand members, and that thirty five dollars is probably as valuable to us. In terms of political clout, I just got back from Washington, D.C. last week. It's probably more valuable to me when I walk into the senator's office and do not, I do not represent me, right? I represent 700,000 of you. And, that, and, and so that is one of the things you can do is you can vote your conservation conscience, right? right. So, you, so the first thing you did was you joined a waterfowl organization with, with clout, right? That's good. And the second thing you did was you voted your conservation conscience because much of the money we spend doesn't come from us. It comes from the federal and state governments. It comes from your voting power. And so uh, that's a really important thing. The third thing I would tell you is your consumerism, right? That's America is built on healthy consumerism. Your consume spend money with, with people, with companies and organizations, spend your money with people that are supporting the things you want to support. You can find them with a little bit of research. You can find those organizations that, that have a, a healthy conservation ethic, that they're trying to have uh, more water, more grass, and more butterflies, and more ducks. You can find them. And so your consumerism is probably almost as powerful as your vote, which is almost as powerful as your dollar. And so those are the three things, the, the, the big three things you can do. You can get in the game. You can vote your conservation conscious. You can spend your money like like that money has a has an impact because it does. Right, right. Well, where do you get all your waterfowl news? I'm just curious uh, how how a, a guy would stay current with the workings and going on. You know, as the more of these podcasts I do, the more people, the more listeners I get, the more I feel like I'm not. Um, not doing the the work on staying current and uh, really having a good, well-rounded picture of what's going on in the country. Um, just curious, what you you use personally? Yeah, so there's something called uh, there's two different uh, versions of the E and E News Daily, which is a digested. It's a uh, there. Uh, it's basically an environment news daily. It's not waterfowl specific because so much of what impacts our waterfowl habitat, things like the Farm Bill. Right, uh, b- big pieces of federal legislation that that go one way or the other, and so a lot of the things that impact um, waterfowl aren't waterfowl, right? It's the Land and Water Conservation Fund or the North American uh, Wetlands Conservation Act or the Farm Bill, and so much of the much of the thing to be in the know really is is a political. It's a political channel, and and I'll be honest with you, the other thing is that. 
my my home um, page on my web browser is ducks dot org, and so DU does a pretty good job of 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 keeping the things that we need to know uh, in front of us. And then the, the third one, and probably it should deserve to be first. I should have listed it. Is that's how I use Twitter. I've sent one tweet in my life, but, but I use Twitter to basically tune tune channels of information to me. Like I don't care who follows me on Twitter. I use it to 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 focus the right information on myself. Excellent. Well, I appreciate that very much. Facebook could be another one as well, but you know, Facebook monkeys with what you see. Yeah. Um, but Facebook's another one as well. So I would tell you probably for me, social media is more important than any of the other channels because you can make your own custom. You, know, you can follow the right part of the Fish and Wildlife Service or the NRCS or, or what, you know, whomever. You can make your own custom tuned um, information stream. Right. Well, I guess last question here, parting question. Um, I don't know if you are able to get out much uh, during the duck season or not, but where do you prefer? Where do you, you know, what's, where are you always trying to get out at? Well, the truth of that is, is that um, my favorite place to go duck hunting is, is, uh, is probably back home in Kansas. And that's more related to people than it is to ducks. Sure. Um, right. That's where I grew up. I went to college. So I go see old friends and, and, uh, and, and so that's the real of it, right? My, my parents are still alive. I can still hunt with my dad once a year. And I try really hard to do that because I know that won't last forever. I'm real conscious of the fact that my time in the blind with my father is extremely limited. It's limited to one or two hunts a year if I get that. Right. But in, ter- in terms of, of, uh, of the, the awesomeness of the waterfowling experience, one of the disadvantages of my job is everybody assumes that I get to hunt all the best places all the time. And that's, that's wholly not true. Um, but I do have friends across a vast geography. And so I do get to travel. So I get to hunt places like coastal Louisiana or flooded timber in Arkansas or the, the Mississippi ag fields in the Mississippi Delta, um, or, or a rice field in Texas. And, and again, uh, all those places I listed are really important places. Uh, and, and I, but it becomes about the people. It becomes about the people that I get to hunt with. Uh, m- m- almost all of which I'd say all of which are associated with ducks unlimited in some way. Um, most of which are volunteers volunteering their time. And it's, as you, you said, you almost use that famous quote, which is that I came for the mission, but I stayed for the people. Now I stayed for the mission, <laughs> but I truly, I truly enjoy the people, um, because they share something with me. Uh, I was in a duck blind one time with a PGA golfer named David Toms. And that was, uh, that was my conversation with him is that the, one of the fascinating things about doing this as a vocation is that you meet people that are just from all walks of society. You know, uh, one guy's a pipe fitter at a refinery. The other guy's a PGA golfer. We're in a duck blind together and we have a whole universe of things to talk about because we share the same interests. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, if you ever so get I'd back like to, to if you ever get back to K State Town, you can you can just give me a call. Uh, that's actually where I'm broadcasting from right now. So <laughs> you're in Wildcat Country right now. I'm in Manhattan, Kansas. I I did not know that. That is really <laughs> awesome. That yeah. is uh, that is got to be the greatest place on planet Earth. And yeah. so I grew up. That duck that I killed yeah. was a was in a in a, in a place. Um, 
uh, it's called, it has a name now. It didn't when I killed that duck. It's called the Timber Creek Marsh uh-huh. on the north, north end of Tuttle Creek on the west yeah. side of the valley. Yeah. Um, that is where that duck came from. So you're, you are, you are in the right place in the world. I was born on Fort Riley, which is not very far from where you are right now. Correct. Yeah. I'm familiar. And, and so look, I got to say, I'll pontificate for just a second. Um, there is nothing in the world more important than waterfowl habitat. But the second most important thing is to get the message out about what we do and why we do it and how it benefits people. The single greatest enemy we have isn't anti-hunters. It isn't competing NGOs. It's absolute ignorance. People do not realize that I work every day, 60 or 70 hours a week, doing everything I can for waterfowl, and that benefits them. It benefits them even if they don't hunt. And what that means is that your job that you volunteered for, that one, the one that you're doing right now, is super important. To, to quote a cheesy song, it's the wind beneath our wings. We simply will not get where we need to go unless the message gets out there. Getting the message out there is really important. And so I thank you for what you do. Well, I tell you, I just – the more and more people I talk to uh, through this venture that I'm doing, the more and more humbled I get. It just – you know, I don't, I don't even possess the interviewing skills to be – you know, to fully extract your – your message, you know, and it's one of those things where when I first started this off, I thought it'd just be something cool to, you know, help my buddies out because I'd always, I was typing, you know, 40 page little book to help my, my boys that wanted to go out hunting with me. Cause I was always taking people out hunting and I said, Hey, read this 40 pages leading up into the season. It's everything, you know, that'll get you all squared away. And, um, I just, you know, started doing it for that. And then the next thing I know, like I got more people and I just, I appreciate, you know, uh, the people that are willing to talk, talk to me, you know, a relative nobody, um, in the name of trying to help waterfowlers out. And I, I think what you said was important. Um, it's not the, it's not the, the anti-hunting animal rights people. It's, it's, uh, more more than somebody that hates me, my biggest, our biggest enemy is the people that don't care. <laughs> they don't care. That's exactly right. And and that's why that to the earlier part of our conversation, that's why it's so frustrating when we want to factionalize and we want to backbite and we want to talk about this is better than that or somebody shortstop and ducks or how come you're not how come you're not doing more work in, in at Cheyenne Bottoms, right? That's where I hunt. If you're not working in Cheyenne Bottoms, how are you benefiting? Right. Right. And so and so you get all versions of those conversations. There are three universes of people that we serve, people that that want all the work to go on in Canada. People think that that all the work should go on in their backyard and people think that we do it about right. And so if I walk into a room, I'm only going to make one third of the people happy at any given time. It's just the nature of it of it. But but again, we have less waterfowl habitat than we used to. And we need a certain amount and we know how much that is. And so what we're working is trying to get, trying to get to that place. And so we need every dollar and every vote and smart consumerism to push us that direction. Working at, working at the scale of the stinking North American continent is daunting, right? It's not like we're just working in Pottawatomie County, Kansas, right? (laughs) Working at that scale is really, really daunting. And so that, that is probably the thing that keeps me up at night is we're going as fast as we can, and it's clear we're not going fast enough. 
So what do I do? Where's the other gear? Right. And and I the answer the answer is when society realizes that the habitat that we deliver is providing ecosystem goods and services that they themselves are dependent on, then we become important. And when that importance re- reveals itself is when you turn on the tap and you don't get clean water. Right? That's that's the first place it will reveal itself. And then all of a sudden, water conservation gets really important. Mm-hmm. Right right in that moment that, that it galvanizes for you, it becomes really important. But you and I, we can see that coming. And so we know we can get out in front of it. And so that, that's why it becomes important to just continue to raise awareness for why we need because people see those wetlands that we deliver as, quote, duck ponds, right? And so all they're there for is for you and I to have someplace to kill ducks on. Why would I support that? Why would I give my money so you could kill more ducks? That's not about it. That's not what it's about at all, right? It's about ecosystems capable of supporting waterfowl populations and all that other stuff. It's about sustainable, balanced ecosystems. And that's why it's so hard because we have to do so much in so many places. And that's what why it's such a such a daunting challenge for all of us right well jerry i appreciate you very much for coming on and uh i mean we'll we'll get uh get we'll get together offline and uh talk about some some hunting opportunities in the future and maybe sharing a duck blind but i i appreciate it very much and uh if you're listening to this still go out make sure your uh, ducks unlimited membership is current and uh, we'll see you at the the next DU banquet, I guess. Yep, and uh, that's great. That's where I, I, I do. I travel to a lot of DU banquets. I speak at a lot of DU banquets all, all across the country, not just in my region. Most recently was in California, and uh, uh, I try to I try to bring this message out. And, and uh, one of the things I I do a lot of these sorts of things, usually around. The, the the right before teal season window mm-hmm. or right before big duck, people get really interested in that. And so I will always make to, I'll bend my schedule as far as I can to make time for anybody that wants to have a conversation like this. And that includes you, if you'd like to do it again, when the next set of numbers come out and we'll talk about stuff. Absolutely. Um, just when it, if I can be of service to you and getting the message out, um, if I was anything but, eager and gracious to do that then i wouldn't be a very genuine person because i just told you it was really important <laughs> right right yeah maybe we'll maybe I'll, I'll get together with you this fall and uh we'll we'll talk about you know the numbers and what we got coming up and kind of uh retouching all these points again real quick yep whatever i can do thank you for your time no thank you very much sir yep we'll see you all right bye Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Fowl Front Waterfowl Podcast. Please come join us on our Facebook group, the Fowl Front Waterfowl Podcast group, where you can connect with a good group of hunters because we're all in this together. We need to act like it so that hopefully our great, great grandkids will be hunting ducks over our favorite public lands. Uh, We also ask that you go ahead and give us a written review on iTunes and give us five stars if you think we deserve it. And we really do want to hear back from you uh, so that we can give you the best possible content. And if you get in on that Facebook group, you can get in there and you can ask questions and you can tell us what you want to hear next or you can tell us uh, what you don't like. And we'll be sure to tailor things to our listeners. So, all right. Stay safe out there and we will see you next week.
Hey, you ever been sitting in front of your TV just wondering why you can't catch the latest episode of The Foul Front right there in your living room so you can press all your guests and family with your fine taste and podcast listening? Me neither, but hey, as a part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective, you can now find The Foul Front and some other great podcasts on your Apple TV, your Roku, your Amazon Fire Stick, Smart TV, even your gaming console just by downloading the Waypoint app. And heck, while you're there, they got over 2,500 hunting and fishing shows on demand. Go download the Waypoint app today.